Hello, welcome to North Coast Calvary Chapel's audio podcast. Good morning, everyone. Uh, Thank you, you're so kind. It's so good to be with you. Uh, Christian surfers, how many of you are here? Raise your hands. Yeah, and by the way, uh, Lindsay did just a wonderful job announcing uh, who you are and your effectiveness around the world, but she failed to say that we have people from around the world, not around the nation. So thank you for traveling uh, from different parts of the world. Uh, We actually think your Aussie and South African accent is better than ours. (laughs) So we love rubbing shoulders against you. And, uh, but I, you know, here we have a board swap out there. Uh, I just want to know, will it make me a better surfer? <laughs> because they, they keep telling me it's, it's, it's the Indio, Indian mark, not the, uh, not the arrow. I keep, I keep switching boards thinking this is going to make me amazing. <laughs> you know, if I, I'm going to surf like Kelly Slater if I just get that board, you know. So, yeah, we're glad you're here. We're going to have a great time this morning culminating uh, in communion, which is something that's a favorite for all of us because it's that moment that we get to come right back to the basics of what it's all about and, and how we met Christ and, and uh, what he did for us on the cross. And if you're a visitor here, we want to invite you to be a part of our communion service at the end. Um, it's a believer's celebration, so it's, it's going to be an opportunity for you to uh, celebrate your faith in Christ or decide, hey, this is the day. I'm, I'm jumping in. The water's fine. Today is the day that I believe in Christ as my Savior. But before we jump into the passage this morning, which is Psalm 22, I just want to say a few words about uh, some tragedies that have been happening. I can't uh, help but mentioned the shootings uh, in Ohio and El Paso. You know, last night I was talking to the church about uh, El Paso, and then I come home and find another shooting has happened. And the tears are not because I know someone personal. It's just I love this country, and it's not the best. It's not the best of our country. And, uh, you know, there's nothing I can do as one person to just now wave my magic wand and, and not only uh, stop the shooting, but stop hate. Um, because you cannot legislate hate. And, but I can just say amongst us, if, if you're on social media, uh, can we tone down the rhetoric uh, and can you ask your politicians to tone down the rhetoric? In my uh, short life, uh, I- I've watched our country become what I would consider less tolerant, not more tolerant. So whatever we're doing with the word tolerant, it's not working. Um, we're misusing the word. It means that I believe as an American, as an American, I would believe and I will defend your right to believe differently than me, to speak differently, and to publish differently than me. And I cannot snuff you out, whether 
yelling or through bullets. It's just insane. So, uh, you know, when I, when I see this kind of behavior, whether it's, it's bullets or just people shouting each other down on media, television, and uh, I just think this is, this is not who we are. Who we are is, this, is people that say, oh, you have an idea, I want to hear it. I don't agree. I already don't agree. Let me hear it. Uh, what, I, what I learned in marriage counseling is if I can't say what you are saying respectfully, then I still don't know what you're saying. Um, at any rate, it, uh, it's not our best in, in the world sees this, and, says, and I know uh, there's many nuances to this, and, and we could talk about this till the cows come home. There's an ex- American expression. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I'm, I am looking for a more tolerant, humble America that's willing to learn and listen. And then our own uh, tragedy right here in Encinitas. Um, I don't know the Davis family, but I understand from many of our people at our church that Pat Davis has been uh, a pediatric dentist here for 40 years practicing. Um, The celebration uh, on the beach was about his, I think, sister-in-law who had beat breast cancer. Uh, And... and and that was why they were at the beach, to celebrate life. Uh, so a, a great, great tragedy. And, and probably the uh, memorial will be here at, at our church. So uh, if you know the family, reach out to them. Uh, we're all going to pray uh, for this family at a, at a time of grief because Pat lost his wife, his sister-in-law, and his daughter uh, in this tragedy. You know, many times I'm walking by the, the bluffs, and we've, we've seen these tragedies uh, down, down in Black's Beach and in other parts where you just think, uh, at any moment, this is, uh, this is not a safe place to be, particularly as, as the beaches shrink uh, at high tide and, uh, and uh, with the uh, water rising. So, tough tough loss. But I want to share, before I pray for these losses, I want to pray uh, and, and share with you some good news. Can I do that? Yeah, yeah. So um, as many of you know that last April 27th, we had a tragic shooting over here in Poway at uh, the synagogue there, Kabad Synagogue. And uh, it, we watched it on the news. We we're just horrified that it would be right here in San Diego, and, and, and it's so close to home because it's a religious building, and, and who's to, to say that anyone wouldn't do that in any kind of religious building? So uh, I reached out to Rabbi, Rabbi Goldstein and uh, left him a message. He was a, a busy man in those days uh, of our love, our support, but I was really in heartened to hear that uh, our Torah group, which is a, a group of Jews and Gentiles that meet to study the Torah uh, on Saturday mornings. And by the way, you're all invited. Uh, 8.30, uh, lessons in Hebrew. 
and 9.30 study in the Old Testament. So they reached out uh, to Rabbi Goldstein and took a trip to Israel to plant trees on behalf of the synagogue in their name. And what a gesture. Oh my gosh. What a great uh, gesture of just crossing the aisle and saying, uh, you know, let's stand together. And those trees have a plaque on, on their behalf. So thank you, Torah Group, for doing that. And if you would like to know more about the Torah Group, there's a table outside that, uh, by the way, we have uh, ethnic groups. We have uh, oftentimes in the, the cafe uh, Iranians that meet, and uh, you'll hear English and Farsi. We have up in my office uh, a Chinese Bible study that goes on, and we, we even have some people that meet that uh, speak surf language. <laughs> Dude. And... Uh, and we're discovering uh, Jesus that's got big arms, that, uh, and we'll talk about that this morning as we study the Word of God. So let's take a moment to pray, and then we'll dive into the Bible. Father, we thank you that you are bigger than all of this. We remind ourselves that this is a broken world, and these tragedies are a reminder that that's exactly why you came. Uh, to put things right, to change to the human heart. And now as we turn from them to us, we pray that you would speak to our hearts. Our prayer for them is that you would comfort all of the families in Ohio and Texas and all the families here in North Coastal County that have been affected by these great losses. We ask that believers in these various regions with the fingerprints and the love of Jesus would come to love and to comfort the families. And we pray, Lord, that your spirit would move in this land, America. We pray for a great awakening. We pray for the church to rise up and become the salt and light of the earth to bring the balm of Gilead and the voice of our Savior to this needy land. Now, Lord, we pray for ourselves that you would open our eyes and our hearts as we study your word. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. I particularly saved this psalm for today, knowing it was Communion Sunday. I love communion because I'm a slow learner. You know, most pastors are all ideational. They're throwing around flowery words, and I'm just there with my lexicon and my thesaurus trying to figure out what what they just said. But when I get to communion, it's it's a show me, it's it's a feely, touchy moment where I actually taste the bread and the cup, the juice, the body and blood of Jesus. My senses are informing my brain that Jesus died for my sins. And I, and I can under, I love food. (laughs) So I'm so glad Jesus included food, uh, into church. I wish we still did the agape feast. Wouldn't that be great? Uh, but you'll have to give me a few more hours if, if, if we're going to do a big feast. 
So that's what we'll be doing at the end of the service. But Psalm 22, particularly because it's all about the cross. This psalm pivots us 1,000 years before Christ, not only about the Messiah coming, but about what he was going to do for us, the cross. Before the cross was invented, before the Romans, their empire was invented. And this, this grueling instrument of death had never been invented, but you see the description so graphically of the Messiah. So consequently, 24 times in the New Testament, this psalm is referred to and referenced as being fulfilled by Jesus. It's a great tool, as I became a believer a few years ago, to be able to talk to my Jewish friends who were surprised to, that the Messiah would suffer and die, that it's not a part usually of the, of the Jewish narrative that there would be a suffering Messiah. Um, but they understood a suffering Israel. And for me to be able to say that he was the consummate Israeli, he was the consummate Israelite who suffered and died. And to be able to turn to Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, and say, there it is in detail. So Spurgeon said about this psalm, this is beyond all others, the psalm of the cross. We should read reverently, putting off our shoes from off our feet. Some of you already have flip-flops on, I've noticed. As Moses did at the burning bush. For if there be holy ground anywhere in Scripture, it is in this psalm. So we're going to ground ourselves, re-ground ourselves. You know, the way we grow as Christians is we don't ever move beyond the cross. We go deeper into the cross. We go deeper into what Christ has done, not what great work I have done. Oftentimes, we have mission drift. Corporations know what mission drift is. I think countries need to think about mission drift. Uh, But as Christians, we can have mission drift. We go out into the world and we want to make an impact on the world and so we believe in social justice and we meet on common ground. You, me, we both believe in social justice and we see uh, people concerned about adoption and we step into it and say, you, me, adoption, not only adoption but family. And you, me, we believe in helping the poor. And you, me, we believe in, in, in a better democracy. And you, me, we, and when we paint ourselves as concerned about all of these things, but we forget what is the core issue that brought us into this change of mind and heart. And it's the cross of Jesus Christ. If you were to picture a flower with all the different beautiful petals around the flower, that Christians care about. At the center of the flower is the stamen, which is the cross. It's it's the reproductive part of the flower that makes us who we are. So we come to the core of our faith. And this psalm begins with a little note as to how you're supposed to sing this song. I love this kind of detail. It's written to the tune of the Doe of the Morning. 
Anyone remember that song? (laughs) My first time uh, teaching for a week on the West Bank among the Palestinians, it was really wonderful to have uh, Palestinian worship going on. And I, I, you know, I didn't understand the words and the music. Uh, It was just phenomenal. But it gave me a taste of how David might have written songs. But here, this psalm, he is only the lyricist. He's not the melody writer. Isn't that interesting? Even though David was a musician, he didn't write the melody. The melody already existed. And apparently, all the Israelites knew the song. The dough of the morning. (laughs) (laughs) But this idea of borrowing a pre-existing melody gave a songwriter the ability to move it very quickly into the mainstream of society because they already knew the melody. Let me give you some other instances of people who have done this. Martin Luther did it. Charles Wesley did it. They borrowed a pre-existing melody and then wrote new lyrics to it because everyone knows the song. So Martin Luther wrote A Mighty Fortress is our God to a pre-existing pub song. Did you know? <laughs> I mean, listen to this, the melody in your mind. Can't you picture a bunch of Germans with their hands on the mug and and they were, if they were English, they'd say, blamey, you know. So Martin Luther takes that and he says, a mighty fortress is our God. We did that in the Jesus movement. Sorry to say, we did it to the song, It's a Small World. (laughs) He's the Lord of the sky. He's the Lord of the sea. He's the Lord of you. He's the Lord of me. (laughs) It sounds pretty corny, doesn't it? A little history, some of you know the name, Larry Norman. So a a Bible study was happening in Larry Norman's house in L.A., and um, then Larry didn't go to it. He he was often traveling as a musician, and he walks into his own home, and he hears all these Christians singing this song, and he goes berserk. He just begins to shout, is that the best God can do? Well, too much time on the intro here. (laughs) So the psalmist cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer me by night, but I find no rest. When we see this kind of indictment against God, we're kind of taken aback. And we ask the question, can you really talk to God that way? Uh, you know, this, this word, forsaken, it's used 86 times in the Old Testament. And there's other people that indict God about forsaking them. But 
it's more used as it's used in Deuteronomy as a promise from God that he will never forsake you. So do you feel the tension? There's a promise that's repeated, by the way, to Christians in the book of Hebrews. I will never leave you or forsake you. Jesus promised to you as low, I am with you always to the end of the age. Yet, I feel forsaken. The feeling of being forsaken is the feeling David had when he wrote this. It's the feeling that Jesus had on the cross, and it's the feeling that you and I have from time to time, isn't it? And we, we feel hesitant to say anything about that at, the, at church because there's someone that's going to come up and slap you on the shoulder and say, come on, it can't be that bad, chip, chip, cheerio. Uh, you know, all things work together for good for those that love God and called according to his purpose. And it comes across like a spiritual mud pie right in the face. And you say, thank you, glory to God. And you realize, I guess the church isn't a safe place to say how I feel. It should be a safe place. We don't have to fix everybody. I don't know why the... The need is to walk into a hospital room and visit someone and say, you know, it can't be that bad. You know, I know you got hit by a bus, but it could have been a semi. You know, <laughs> we don't have to re-spin it. It's okay. There is a God. The position is filled. It's not you. The Holy Spirit knows how to comfort people, and it's okay. God has broad shoulders, right? So we don't need to protect God. You, you dare say that? It's okay. There was a time in my life where I felt, many, many times I felt forsaken. He's there, I know he's there, and I don't need anybody to remind me that he's there, but I, it's the feeling. I just saw him a couple of weeks ago, and now I'm in a dark place, and I can't see him anywhere. It's a time of growing in my faith, because whatever you say in the light is just kind of yeah, 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 and then you go through the dark time, and then now we're finding what you really believe. It grows your faith. But in those times, you may cry out to God, and there's several psalms of lament this psalm, Psalm 6, I don't remember them all, Psalm 30, Psalm 31, they're all psalms of lament that go back and forth in kind of a teeter-totter action. Where are you, God? But I know you're there. What did you do to me? But I know it'll get better. <laughs> and it's back and forth, which incidentally is a great way to pray. Pour your heart out, but then remind yourself of the history of God in your life and what scripture says. So one of those instances, Jan and I had just taken a position up in Lake Arrowhead, which is a tough way to start a ministry. It was beautiful. We loved it up there. It was just uh, gorgeous. Everyone escaping from LA and Orange County uh, to go away from, from the smog and to live at 5,500 feet elevation above the smog. But uh, when we got there, we had, we had taken a little bit of a risk. Jen was seven and a half months pregnant. We lived in Pasadena, and we thought God was telling us to move there. I had wisely consulted with some people 
Um, and it just seemed like the community all was in sync that we should make this move. I got up there and I found out the salary was not what I thought it was going to be. And I told them I couldn't live on $275 a month. <laughs> and they said to me, well, all right, we'll increase it to 325 But we'll find out whether you're, you're in it for the money or not. <laughs> and whether you love Jesus. And I said, no, I'll find out whether you love me. So there I was. I was stuck in this commitment. I couldn't find a place to live. I couldn't. There was nothing for rent. There was nothing we could afford to buy. And I walked out into the forest. And I let God have it. You know, I, I, I was afraid lightning was going to come down on me. Because I'd never done this before. I was maybe three years old in the Lord. And, and I just, I yelled at him. And I said, what were you even thinking? And it feels good to be in the forest where, you know, nobody's talking back and no one can hear you. Uh, and, um, and, and I just went through this litany of all the things that had gone wrong since we moved up there. And I, I ended my speech to God saying, you can mess with anything in my life, but there's two things you better never mess with. It's my wife and my son who is about to be born. Do not mess with me. <laughs> and uh, it got real quiet in the forest. <laughs> And I, I can't be for sure, but I think it's, it was God's Jewish sense of humor coming back. Uh, what came back into my heart was, so what am I supposed to mess with? Your Toyota Corolla? <laughs> it, it was the only thing I owned. <laughs> and it was a used Toyota Corolla. And I thought, and I burst out laughing through my tears. I said, Obviously, Job had more than his Toyota Corolla messed with. And some of you have had painful things in your family and your story and so forth. And, and I don't think that God, in a sinister way, does all of that. But it, it happens. Bad things happen to good people, right? And uh, what do we do? Well... Sometimes we need to kind of emote. And I need to believe that God isn't disturbed. It's like, whoa, what's going on down there? You know, uh, you know, that he's just smiling. He knows my heart. And, and maybe it's even an act of faith. Because if I didn't have faith, I would withdraw. And some of us maybe have done that. We've, we withdraw, we get bitter. Maybe we actually begin to sin because, well, if you're, gonna, if you're not committed, I'm not committed. And that's dangerous, that kind of stuff. But to get it all out is what David is doing here and the words of the Messiah. Now, I want to say something that's, I think, very important about these words my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
As you know, these are the very words that Jesus uttered in Aramaic. Two different versions of it. One is Eloi, Eloi, and one is Eli, Eli. But it's essentially Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. And the labachthani is the, the forsaken word. Eli, Eli is my God. El is God. E is mine. Eli, Eli, why have you forsaken me? Many of us have struggled with the idea of Jesus uttering these words. Are you with me? Like, God the Father, did you really do this? I mean, this guy comes to earth, crosses the infinite gap from heaven to earth, lives 30 years serving you, and then for three years serves you publicly, and then you forsake him at the critical moment of his life. And so as a new believer, I struggled with that, and I struggled with the answer that I got. And this is where I need to tread lightly, because I'm going to move your doctrinal cheese just a little bit, okay? And, and uh, you, you're free to disagree with me, because whenever our cheese gets moved, we're not happy mice. So... My question is, could it be that God did not forsake him? I personally don't believe that God the Father ever forsook Jesus. So the standard answer to arrange and explain this is that Jesus at that moment was bearing the sins of the world. God cannot look at sin. And so God looked away and Jesus felt it. And that was the feeling of being forsaken, right? And that's what we've said. But let me explain it a different way that fits my narrative. And that is that God never forsook David and he never forsook Jesus and he's never forsaken you. But there are times where we feel forsaken, right? And he grabbed hold of these words and I'll explain why in a minute. But that God didn't forsake his son. He sent his son. He anointed his son for the mission. His son even prayed in the garden, is there any other way? The father says no, and his son obediently goes to the cross, and the father never forsook him. Yes, he took the sins of the world. But just as the angels over the Ark of the Covenant stare at the blood of the lamb of, that, that's, that's sprinkled on the uh, Ark of the Covenant, the holy chest, the Ark of the Covenant, so the angels and even God are staring at the wonder of such sacrifice and such love. And that was the whole point that Jesus was crucified before the foundations of the world, and it is the plan. So you say to me, well, then why would Jesus utter these words? And I would thank you for asking that question, because that leads me to my next point, and that is that two things. One, it was the feeling of Jesus. I mean, look at what's happening there at the cross, but the second thing is, He's referencing Psalm 22. It's how Jews referenced anything. They took the front line 
of a passage of scripture, and that pointed to the rest of the people, this is what I want to read to you. This is what is happening here. I am turning you to this passage. So if you wanted to read or reference Genesis, you cannot say, please turn in your Torah scroll to Genesis 1.1. There were no chapter numbers and there were no chapter verses. Did you know? So how would you do it? you would open your scroll and say, I am reading from in the beginning was God. And everyone would think, ah! And they would begin to think through in their minds the rest of Genesis chapter one. So Jesus, as he's on the cross, he says, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, and all the Jews are given the possibility to say, oh my gosh, Psalm 22 is being fulfilled right before your eyes. It's a different perspective, isn't it? So did they understand? Well, no, many of them didn't because Matthew 27, or verse 47 says, when some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Notice Eli, Eli, Elijah is the same word, my God, but it also has Yah at the end, which is the syllable for Yahweh. Immediately, one of them ran, got a sponge, and filled it with wine vinegar and put it on his staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. So Jesus, I believe, is referencing the people around him to understand that Psalm 22 is being fulfilled right before your eyes, and the early church got it. And that's why it's referenced 24 times in the New Testament. So now, very quickly, we, we begin our waffling back and forth. As I said, it's a good way to pray, where the psalmist introduces hope. He says, yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. Our ancestors put our trust in you. They trusted and you delivered them. And they cried out and you saved them, so forth. He's, he's reminding his own heart as to the faithfulness of God and the goodness of God. And then now, in teeter-tottering, he goes back to the torment from the crowd. He says in verse 6, But I am a worm, not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. They say, let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him, a worm. Yet I am, oh, can you think of a better metaphor for humility? <laughs> I mean, I, I, we, we protect animals and insects, and we're the society that's protecting everything that we can think of. I, you know, I don't think we move to the level, level of molecules, but we, we try to, but I don't do much to protect worms. I mean, if I see a caterpillar, because I used to collect butterflies, you know, I, I, I know what it might be, and I pick it up and help it across the road, as long as I'm not on the freeway. <laughs> but uh, a worm? It's, it's the, they're good for fish hooks, right? And that's how he feels. He's at the lowest slot of society, 
But it's verse 8 that is repeated and recorded in Matthew 27, verse 41. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross, meaning let him save himself, He will, and we'll believe him. Then they accidentally quote Psalm 22. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. So it's being fulfilled. So then he goes back to saying, uh, I trust in you, God, verses 9 through 11. He says, you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust you. I've been a believer since I was, I was early on in my life. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. But then finally we get to verse 12 through 18, and this is the crux of the matter where you see so much of the crucifixion described. He talks about his enemies being dogs, strong bulls, roaring lions. He says that he's poured out. His whole being's poured out like water. And then he even describes his bones there in verse 14. All my bones are out of joint. This is the point where you kind of begin to step back and say, whoa, 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 what's going on? that this would be happening in David's life because there's no historical record that David ever experienced all of his bones being out of joint. And you might argue, oh, it's, a, it's poetic, it's, it's a metaphor. And I would say, of what? It, it sounds way too graphic. But that's what happens in crucifixion. You're hanging there, and it's the weight of your body that begins to separate the joints. I've only had a few joints, tennis, elbow, uh, bad knee, but if you can imagine all your joints coming apart. And in this description is, by the way, the only place in Scripture that we have the description of the cross in the first person. Do you understand? I know that that's grammar, but uh, the first person is I. It's me. This is my experience. And so if you ever ask, what was it like, Jesus, to be on the cross? Psalm 22 is the answer. My heart, in verse 14, is turned to wax that melts. We've all melted wax. We know what that's like to have the core of your being, your heart, just melting. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. Remember when Jesus said, I thirst? And they gave him a sponge two different times. The first one he refused. The second one he, he received, and then he cries out out of that moistening of his mouth because he wouldn't have been able to speak uh, without that and says it's finished. Dogs have surrounded me, a pack of villains, and we read the gospel accounts of how the religious leaders were uh, mocking and sneering at him. Then he says, all my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. 
Uh, scripture records that none of his bones were broken. Remember, they broke the bones of the two thieves to speed up the death because they could push themselves up to get a breath uh, as long as they could. But once your legs are broken, then you can't push yourself up anymore and you suffocate. Well, all of bone, Jesus' bones were intact because he had already died. And then the words that are so striking, they divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. Such detail. If you ask, what are the statistical odds of this happening? It, it, it's just hard to even begin to comprehend a thousand years before Jesus. But you know that that's exactly what happened and is recorded in John 19, verse 24, where it says, by the way, all the Gospels record this instance about the garments, but John is the only one that has the guards talking. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that said, they divided, and here's Psalm 22 again, they divided my clothes among them, they cast lots for my garment. So the guards who wouldn't paid enough money said, hey, this robe of Jesus is actually worth something. Let's cut it up so that we all get a piece of it. And one wisely says, no, 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 no. Let's, let's play some poker here and let's find out who, who gets the whole thing. Because you can either have it or you can sell it for some money. And that's what they did. So the whole description that ends up happening. You know, when I take communion, I'm often at a loss as to how am I supposed to respond to this story? You know, I've, I've talked to Hindus that say, you know, this is not a good thing in religion to have the hero die like this, you know, you need to change the story. I said, no, no, this is actually the story. Uh, this is the story. So what do we do with this communion celebration where we're celebrating the fact that our, our hero died? Sometimes I feel grief and I ask the question, was it really my sin? Is my sin that bad that I had that you had to die? I like the answer. Yep. You know, the deeper you go into sin, I mean, you, you come to Christ and you move away three boulders and you say, I lied when I was twelve, I, I wasn't good at my job, and I should have done this, and I went, you know, and and then but under the boulders are river rock. And under the river rock are sand of all the nuances of you. The hate and, and, and the, the greed and the resentment and the lust that just kind of lingers in all of us. He died for it. And I'm grieved, but I'm also thankful. Aren't you grieved and thankful? That's what Eucharist means, to give thanks you, uh, EU means uh, good. So it's a good thing. It's a good thing that Jesus died for you. I'm inspired. I'm thinking, you did this, Jesus. Could I do this? Could I be a martyr? Would I be a martyr? 
if it came to it. I'm inspired by what he, I'm loved. When I look at the bread and the juice, I think, oh my gosh, did you love me that much? Greater love has no man than this. He laid down a life, his life for his friend. I'm, it's the feeling of free. I am forgiven. Did you know? Did you know amnesty from God himself for all the things you did and all the should have things you should have done and all the could have things you could have done, forgiven? And it roots me right back into the cross all over again. In just a moment, we're going to have and share in the communion. But let me remind you, at the end of the psalm, there's a, a statement that includes you in the story. This is where you come in. Verse 27, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations The word there, Jews know this word, it's goyim. It's the Gentiles. That's the word nations. It's everybody else. They're going to hear it. That's been the plan all along. Not to keep it to the Jews, but everybody gets to know about this great God. In verse 30, future, there you are. Future generations will be told about the Lord. And they will proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. It's you. And then check out the final word. He has done it. Oh, so solid. No pun intended. Nailed it. He has done it. It's the phrase... What is the New Testament? It is finished. Kaput. Done. Aren't you glad? So folks, we don't have this religion that's just like everybody else's. and And I love to find the commonality. But there was a point beyond the healing, beyond the teaching, beyond the feeding of the poor, and, and so forth, Jesus set his flint face like a flint for the cross. He was up near the border of Lebanon at a retreat with the disciples, and he said, in Matthew, you can read about it, he said, the Son of Man must go to Jerusalem, chapter 16, and be killed, and on the third day rise again. And then he says to the disciples, now you take up your cross and fall. It is the core of who we are, the cross. We pivot around it and we grow deeper. And so Jesus, from that point on, from Caesarea Philippi down to Jerusalem, traveling about five miles, 140, five days, 143 miles from Ventura to Carlsbad, he walked because I'm dying for you. I'm walking because I have people in mind that I'm going to die for. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, 
for you. Aren't you glad? In just a moment, the ushers are going to come forward for us to celebrate, and uh, we'll be worshiping. Feel free to, uh, as you hold the bread and the cup, we ask you to hold your portion until we've all been served. Feel free to grieve. Feel free to thank him. Feel free to uh, celebrate his great love for you. Father, we invite you to come by your spirit in this special, holy moment. God, we confess our sins. We thank you that you are faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thank you, Lord, that the story of the cross is true. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening this week. If you're looking for ways to serve, give, or get connected, please visit our website, northcoastcalvary.org.